Blessed is the Old Testament, Isaiah. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The, the least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten in it. Lesson from the Epistles, Revelation 22, 1, 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the, tr the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, per tradition, we will begin with a brief interview for uh, the youngest among us. Quick question. All right, I need it. This is just a show of hands situation here. You don't have to. It's not like a real test. This is a minor test. How many of you are supposed to brush and floss? Not brush or floss. Brush and floss your teeth before you go to bed. That's not true? You don't have to brush and floss? No? You brush but don't floss? Okay. Do you have to brush and floss? Yeah. Black box? Brush and floss or brush or floss? Wishy-washy. Okay. Wow. Alright. Uh, out of curiosity, for those of you who have to brush and floss, like me, how many of you want to brush and floss? Is there anybody who actually is like so excited to go brush and floss right now? <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's that's good. Uh, that's good for some sort of psychiatry over here. Um, right. Second one: How many of you are supposed to go to bed early before a school night? Maybe I, we should say earlier than you want to, even right? Right. Clearly, I think. I mean, that's still true for me. I have to force myself to go to bed before like work. 
We're like, oh, it's kind of peaceful right now. I'm just hanging out. Okay, uh, food. You, you, can, you can see where this is going here, right? How many of you are supposed to eat salad or vegetables with your dinner? You're like, X number serving, yeah, you got, or like, uh, uh, what's the thing where you have to have a bite of whatever the worst thing on the plate is before you can eat whatever? What's that about? French fries, those are a vegetable, right? Uh, okay, here's a, here's a perverse one from my own childhood. How many of you are supposed to do something academic over the summer so that you don't forget everything that you learned the prior year in school? You? That was me, man. On the summers, I'm like, like doing math. It was like, yeah, well, I, I got you. It's implicit. We'll talk later. All right, that's not a thing for you guys? You don't have to do the academics? You do? <laughs> it's summer. I'm the worst parents ever. <laughs> uh, all right, adults. <clears throat> there are a few questions that are related for us. Uh, how many of you feel like you should exercise more than you do? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, sleep more, drink less, spend more time with your children. The number of shoulds in life is extremely high. There are a lot of things that we are supposed to do. And we would generally, you know, even a lot of them are self-imposed. Like, I should go to bed earlier so that I can wake up and be more cheery. You know, I, I should do all of these things. But it's kind of hard to motivate yourself to want to do those things because the benefit for the thing isn't right now. Right? And as soon as you have that time range between what you're supposed to do and when you're going to see the benefit, it becomes a difficult thing. That's, uh, that's the thing. If flossing is a great example here. If every 12 hours or any 24 hours or pick a time period that you didn't floss, your teeth started shrieking audibly in agony, we would all floss, you know, just like the dentist wants us to, right? Because we'd have like a, a like this thing happens and you're like, boom, my teeth are making this awful noise right now. I need to go floss. It'd be easy to do. But the fact that it's going to be 12 years before your dentist looks at you and says, like, well, I guess now you're going to need some kind of strange gum surgery or whatever. You know, we all live in fear of whatever the dentist is going to tell us. And then you're like, it's kind of easy to put it off. It's the immediacy versus that time delay, and that, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Humans, at core, are not very good at believing and remembering things that are not immediate. We struggle to motivate ourselves with, with delays of time. Uh, there's a whole industry built around this. It's called the credit card. All right, today's text is going to be 2 Peter 3. We're going to read 1 through 13. Um, I confess this is absolutely one of, my, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I, I love it because it reminds me of um, a hope that I need to have, and it's a hope that I find somewhat difficult to have, um, and therefore I find it, I find it very, very encouraging. We're going to break it into three points, um, the first seven verses, which basically just reminds us that it is difficult to wait for the return of Christ, but it encourages us to do that waiting. Those are the first seven verses. And then we go eight through ten, and we talk about why exactly Christ has not returned. What is the reason for this delay? And then 11 to 13 is like a call to live patiently while we are waiting. So it's not super complicated in terms of like what the text is doing. You'll read it. You can understand it. The goal here is not to wow you with like, oh, this has never made sense. The goal here is to meditate as a family as we all live waiting for Christ's return. 
I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to start reading here. Uh, God, we, uh, we acknowledge that we are frail, that there are so many things that are difficult for us. God, we are uh, grateful that you have still spoken to us through Scripture, that your Spirit uses that to change who we are. I ask, God, that you would do that again for us today, that you would help us to meditate on what is true, to replace our false thoughts with true ones, to more uh, eagerly embrace our hope, and that we would be able to do this um, as a community this morning. Amen. All right, I'm going to read the first seven verses of this section. This is 2 Peter 3, um, and this idea here is that we are waiting for Christ, which is kind of difficult. All right, read along. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. All right, we've said that this little section, if we're going to summarize it briefly, is the idea that we are waiting for Christ, which can be difficult. And he goes and he covers kind of this, you know, I'm encouraging you to do this. There are people who are scoffing at you. Don't forget that there was a beginning, that there was a flood, and that we are looking forward yet to a fire. Um, interestingly, did you guys see a, a rainbow yesterday? I, there, was, there, was, there was a brief rainstorm over where I live, and then there was a lovely rainbow. And every time I see a rainbow, I think about... Two things. One, God's promise to never again destroy the world with water, right? The flood will, will not be there, and it's a, it's a promise. But also, the fact that the next time God destroys the earth will be with fire. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting one. That there, there's, there's, there's twofold to this, you know, like that we've had one, but there is yet another baptism of, of fire to go. Uh, okay. One little detail in here. Um, in verse 3, Notice that, that Peter refers to this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Um, now, the last days is an interesting idea in the New Testament. When we refer in the New Testament to the last days, they really don't just mean sometime in the future. They mean the time they're living in as well. So the last days in the Bible is this broad term for everything that happens after Christ has ascended into heaven. And those are called the last days because all we are waiting for now is for him to return. That's all there is that's, that, that we're waiting for. The imminence of Christ's return, that's the doctrine we refer to that, is imminence. That Christ could return at any point. In fact, the text here will talk about him coming like a thief, right? Um, which is also a biblical picture in, in the Gospels. But now, it, that is a little bit weird for us. I think we should acknowledge that, um, because that's part of the difficulty with our waiting. Though it's been 2,000 years where we are living in the last days, waiting for the return of Christ. 2,000 years. We've had the Roman Empire come and then decline. We had the, the, you know, the era of knights, the Middle Ages. They came and they went. We had the Reformation. We had the Enlightenment. 
New continents were discovered. Countries have come and gone, and we are still here. All of this period is the last days. It's a long time. Frankly, it's a lot of waiting. And that brings us to this idea that that waiting is a difficult thing for humans. Waiting is hard. And quite frankly, part of that is that our experience of waiting makes things difficult. Um, Are you familiar with the idea of the continuity fallacy? Continuity fallacy is something that that has recently happened to to banks. Um, That, you know, the, the market conditions will continue as they have been for recent history. And then interest rates swung, and that meant a whole lot of things shifted, and a bunch of banks failed, right? But continuity fallacy, things will remain as they are. That is not, not a thing that we believe. We do not believe that the way that it has been for 2,000 years is how it will be for all of time. We are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. There will be an ending point. But that is difficult for us, because at core... The thing that we are experiencing is the thing that we will continue to believe. It feels right now as though it will go forever. And that is just difficult. That's difficult for me. It's difficult for me to actively believe in something that I'm not currently experiencing. So it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait for Jesus. The other thing that makes it rather difficult to wait for Jesus is that other people are scoffing at the idea that he will return. Right? And Peter brings this up explicitly, that there is, there's, there's scoffers, people who make fun of, of a belief that there will be a return of Christ. Verse 4 says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's like a, a version of, you know, oh, you believe in God, where is he? I don't see God. You know, maybe he's under the rug, or maybe he's in the bathroom. Or it's like, well, you know, I don't see him. Therefore, he doesn't exist. God is going to return? At what point? You know, there, there are a lot of ways that, that a, a, a person who is not of the church would look at what we believe and, and make fun of it. Right? Culture will do that. that. That's a constant pressure from the outside. In response to that, Peter encourages us by reminding us that things had a beginning. And if they had a beginning, it is not so crazy to think that they will have an end. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If there is a beginning, if there's a fixed beginning for the world, then it is not crazy. It is not crazy to think that there will be a a change, that there will be an ending. It is an undoing of the idea that just as they are today is how they always have been. Right? No, no, no. We can say, no, there, there there was a start. There was a start. It was not always this way. There will be an ending. That is not a crazy belief. All right. Um, that's a rough, rough look at the first seven verses. It's hard to wait for Christ. Plenty of outside pressures. Plenty of just existential pressures. Now, that, acknowledging that is difficult might lead us to think that, that God has us in this difficulty for our own good, right? 
very often in Scripture, when we see something that is difficult, we think about it as like, well, what am I supposed to learn from this? Or how am I supposed to grow through this? Or what is God trying to teach me? Right? And that is, that's a good way to think about difficulty, that God uses difficulty for us to grow and to change and to become more like he is. Interestingly, in this case, Peter does not say that is why we are waiting. It's kind of awesome. He's going to talk about why it is. But the reason that God has been slow is not just to test us. It is not just to change us. Peter says that God is slow to return so that many might receive salvation. That God is slow so that more people can receive the forgiveness of Christ. Verses 8 through 10. This is the second point. God is patient but sure. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient but sure. The first thing to think about there is that God's perspective on time is quite different than ours. Verse 8. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is infinite. His perception of time is quite perfect. We are distressed by five minutes on Mopac. Our hand-wringing and worry about, you know, is Christ going to come back? Oh, goodness, when is it going to happen? That is is a a problem of our perception more than a true and real infinite issue. I can say that, but that doesn't mean that I feel that. You know, there are times when it it does feel difficult to believe. Um, If you guys are are looking for books for your reading list, which is usually precisely zero humans, uh, pretty much everybody has a reading list that's far too long, but one you can add there for the I will never quite get there, but I can feel guilty about it. Um, Augustine Confessions is fantastic. It's a fantastic read. Um, I would encourage you to read it devotionally. He, he tells about his own life, um, but he tells about it in a way that is less like a, a biography or an autobiography and more like, like a devotional. So he will, he will tell you about his sins and like he's, he's trying to be as open as possible and like, I, th- I thought this and this was good and then I had these sins. And then he, like, he pleads with God to forgive him. And he praises God for his mercy and his patience. Then he moves on to the next part of his life and he's just constantly breaking into prayer. And if you, if you read it like a biography, it's very frustrating, but if you read it like a devotional that you were going to pray along with him, it is, it's, it's wonderful. Anyway, there's a point where he's moved quite a ways through his life and he takes a, a solid left turn And all of a sudden, he starts talking about who God is and what it is to be God instead of man. And he's doing this while he thinks about time. And it becomes like a philosophical kind of meditation about what is time and how is God's perception and reality of time and how do those things interact. And it is like, it's it's awesome. It's very encouraging. Because it just, like, it helps you think through the idea of, like, oh, when we speak of God as, as an infinite being, he is, he is not like we are. He, he has existed for all time, for all, always, outside of time. 
You know, he's made everything that, that is. And our, our thing of like, oh, this feels like so long. You know, that's like how we pat like the three-year-old on the head. And it's like, well, it's okay. By the time you go to bed, Christmas will be here in the morning. I think you can make it. Right? Fantastic. All right. Uh, Augustine time. God's perspective on time is very different than ours. Um, specific reason God is waiting. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Folks, if we are going to complain about the fact that Christ has waited 2,000 years to return, and that the last days have gone on so long, are we so foolish as to exclude ourselves from his mercy to us? He has been slow, and it is because of his slowness that we are alive, that we are here. He has waited, and, and, and we, have, we have become a part of his people. And, and many of us have children. And, and the, the great gift to see, like, oh, God has waited, and I've had children, and, and, and may they see his repentance as well. And I hold my grandbaby, and I think, oh, the mercy and the patience of God, right? May, may this, this granddaughter also see. Like this, it just continues, right? The patience of God is the reason that you know, our existence has been and we have received his mercy. And that, that is a good thing that God has delayed for so long is because he is, he is patient toward you. He is not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. That said, he will return. This is still his promise. And when he returns, it will be with judgment. But when you look there, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then verse 10 affirms the other side of that deal. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It is thus ironic in Peter's view that people are scoffing at the patience of God. So the scoffers we saw in the the first seven verses who are saying, where is he? You know, where is the promise of his coming? But Peter affirms, no, God will in fact come. And all the deeds will be exposed and there will be fire and there will be judgment. But God is patient and he endures the scoffing of unbelievers so that they would have a chance to repent, so that future generations will have a chance to repent. The patience, patience and mercy of God. By having not returned yet, God is calling on us to be patient with him. It's an interesting bit. God is patient that all should reach repentance, and we are called to that same patience. That's an interesting thing to think about um, in light of the fact that there is, there is much suffering in life. Um, you think about the various persecutions the church has gone through over the years. Um, the Diocletian persecution, 300. Um, so many believers were burned alive. You know, and, and to think that God is willing to endure the suffering of his people because he is patiently waiting for many, many more to come to repentance. 
And he calls on us to, to share in that patience as we wait. In the meantime, we are to live with hope. Verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There are three, three quick aspects I'd like to encourage us with about how we are to live. Um, when we're called to hold fast, we're called to hold fast as a community. All of this was addressed to a church, right? He says, this is, this is the second time I'm writing you. He's writing to a church. And this is a group of people. It is not spoken to an individual. It was not addressed to, you know, his, his individual friend who carries this burden on his own. This is a community thing. We are to meet to encourage one another, to remind one another, to remember with one another that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are supposed to wait, and we are supposed to wait as a family, as a community, and we are to encourage one another in that. The second thing is that as we are waiting, we are called to live lives of holiness and godliness. Um, The second half of 11 here, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? What does God want from his people other than that they would live lives of worship as he has instructed us? Right? We are to live in the ways that he has asked us to live as worship to him. Fascinating, um, in 12, he speaks of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are hastening the coming of God. Our living lives of holiness and godliness helps bring about the return of Christ as he is waiting for all of his people to reach repentance. We are called to live in participation of that, of calling people to repentance and living lives that truly show who God is. Finally, we are called purely to wait. We are called to wait for the coming of the day of God. Patience is a virtue. It is a virtue that God calls us to. We are to live lives of holiness and godliness in waiting, remembering the predictions of the prophets long ago. Uh, Last week, Evan talked about Job. Um, I I think a lot about that book um, and thought about your sermon through the the week, especially in, in light of this, that the waiting for Job is much different than the waiting for us sitting in wonderful air-conditioned comfort here. I imagine time slowed down for Job in many of those, many of those days. They felt each one like an eternity. Waiting for God is more difficult when you are suffering. Waiting for God is more difficult when you are surrounded by scoffers. Waiting for God is 
sometimes easier and sometimes harder. So the difficulty will be uh, variable, um, but it is never meaningless. It is never meaningless. We are waiting for our brothers and sisters to repent. We are waiting for our brothers and sisters to be born so that they can receive God's grace as we did. And eventually we will die and we will see Christ return. Or perhaps we will live and see Christ return. But we will see his return and his victory. I want to close with a reading from Isaiah 25, um, one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God, we ask that you would fill us with patience. Give us a faith that is able to endure um, the days they pass on. God, help us to, to take hold of what we do not yet see, that you are a God who keeps his promises, that you will return to judge the living and the dead. Keep us sure until that day and allow us to live lives of holiness and godliness. Amen.